Welcome to Season 2 of The Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender. And on this podcast, I bring to you guests of a lot of different kinds, survivors and thrivers, innovators and trailblazers, folks that have fallen down and gotten back up, folks that have been knocked down and gotten back up. Basically, I ask every single guest the same question. How did you get through what you got through? And the reason I ask that is because I think that when we share those stories, we gain empathy for those different than ourselves. We gain understanding from those whose circumstances may resemble our own. But we all get to walk away with a little notion of how we might get through whatever we're going through. I hope you enjoyed these stories and feel free to go to themorningglory.project.com to find any past episodes or to listen to one again and feel free to share us out with your friends and give us a reviewer like we sure do appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Today, I welcome to the Morning Glory Project, Daniel Charles. Daniel found a portal from the life he was leading that was largely flavored with a lot of anger and depression and struggle to a more peace-filled life that he lives now. But he found that portal in the most unusual of locations while living upstairs from about 50 dogs. Today, he's an intuitive animal advocate, an artist, and a lifelong student of nature and a messenger of love and compassion. Life has been Daniel's greatest teacher, from his connection with animals to his many travels and relationships with fellow humans. Through the powerful teachings of animals and the guidance of his ancestors, Daniel creates a bridge of understanding between animals and people. His life's mission is to love and serve all who he encounters so as to help them remember themselves in the light that they truly are. In a world full of endless questions, self-love is always the answer. Daniel Charles, welcome to the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Betsy. It's an honor to be here. I appreciate you having me on your show. Daniel, tell me a little bit about what kind of state you were in in 2016. What was your life like? In 2016, I was living a life that was pretty unfulfilling, doing what I thought was fulfilling by making sure I had stable income um, and a roof over my head and making enough money to be happy and comfortable and always having this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like I just wasn't happy with what I was doing. And in 2016, I made a radical transformation and moved from Chicago to California um, for a relationship um, that was sort of spontaneous and out of the blue. And I sold all my possessions and relocated to San Francisco and um, was living basically in a new city and a new surrounding with um, not too many people that I knew there. Yeah, that was sort of where I was at before I I got to the next step of my life. And and what was the work that you were doing that you left? I was working as a project engineer for a construction company. I was the computer nuts and bolts spreadsheet side of a construction project, uh, a job I had just started six months prior, and I had uh, committed to this project for a year. And six months into this year-long project, I uprooted myself and left in in part for love, you say there was a relationship, but it sounds like even even without that factor, 
though lots of people might find that particular job enviable and it sounds like it, you know, it paid the rent and it did good things and probably had benefits and all those kinds of yummy things, but there was something really missing for you. Yeah, it was um, the most money I had ever made. I actually was, you know, hired on as a, a 1099 employee and they offered me a salary position. I accepted the position and a week later I gave the position back um, and I was doing jobs before for the money and for the security. And it wasn't that I was wealthy and making a lot of money, but I was doing things for the security, but I wasn't um, following any sort of internal bliss or passion of what I was truly interested in. I was just trying to stay alive and survive, as they say. It's just a job. Yeah, just a J-O-B. And you talked about how you carried anger with you. Do, how, what, what role was anger playing in your, in your being at that time? Yeah. You know, I, I believe that the anger that I was carrying was really the source of most people's anger, which is, um, sadness at its root. And I had some sadness that I carried around that manifested as anger, um, sadness from experiences as a child growing up, um, moving, uh, from my birth country of Belgium to the United States when I was seven was a pretty big experience for me. Um, being a bit of a black sheep and getting into some trouble as a teen and a youth um, and um, struggling with academics and, and sort of taking on a feeling of not being worthy or capable and, and just kind of angry at the world for really just, I think, a, a sadness deep down that hadn't been given too much love or light. Mm. Um, and so life was kind of unfulfilling and sort of meaningless. And I was just sort of functioning in what you would call maybe a, a low level state of depression where I wasn't, uh, I was social. I had friends, I was out and about, I was on the scene and, you know, making connections, but deep down inside, there wasn't a lot of fulfillment going on. You know, I've heard it said that depression is anger turned inward. Mm -hmm. Does that feel true for you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I always was told I had great potential um, when I would get evaluated um, by, you know, a psychiatrist or some academic institution that would test my IQ, but um, I wasn't performing in school. And so there was, there was some inward anger of, you know, if I'm, if I'm so great, if I'm so, if I have so much potential, then, you know, why am I also a failure at school? And so I think, yeah, there definitely was, I didn't really love myself. I didn't like me mm. at a deep level. You know, I wonder how many times, how many parents and kids have heard that, oh, he's got so much potential, but he's not living up to it kind of a, a thing. That always sounds like such a, what's the word left-handed compliment, you know, that kind of a, a backslap in a way it's, it, it basically means you're not doing what you should be able to do. Yeah. And, and when should is being used, it's connected to expectation or doing it for someone else. Um, you're under obligation, really not expectation. Mm. And so I would resent the fact that I was shown to be capable and full of potential because I felt like it sort of got me in trouble because I didn't, I wasn't motivated by school. I wasn't made to fit into the standard educational indoctrination system of public education. It wasn't a place where my gifts were uh, able to thrive and, and blossom and bloom. And I, I did gain a lot of valuable tools and skills from school, 
but it just wasn't a learning environment that um, appealed to my style of learning, which was a more hands-on learning through life, learning through experiences. And so school was a bit of a backhanded experience to, to kind of use that phrase of some positive things for sure, but I just wasn't um, kind of built for, for, for school. Well, it's not a one size fits all kind of a deal, is it? Yeah, not at all, which, you know, why, that's why there's Montessori and gifted programs and other ways, because we are all very unique colors and, you know, versions of ourselves and we're not made for a box. You know, you look in nature, there's not very many straight lines out there. Um, straight mm -hmm. lines and boxes are a man-made thing. Um, and I just found that I didn't really fit into those boxes. And so that definitely created some inner turmoil and feelings of worthiness and potential that I definitely carried on for a while. So you came to San Francisco and love didn't quite blossom. If I remember from our earlier conversation, <laughs> love didn't, didn't quite work out. So you moved around some more. And where were you in 2017? Kind of let's jump ahead a bit. And you had a number of transitions and a number of geographies in there. But what happened? What was kind of bottom for you? You know, bottom was moving all the way to a new state for a relationship. And after three months, the relationship not working out and taking that really hard and feeling like there was something wrong with me, that I was doomed to live a loveless life, that I wasn't going to succeed in a relationship. Uh, my parents had gotten divorced a couple of years before, so I was sort of taking on this belief that maybe I was doomed to the same fate. And so I was feeling pretty down about myself um, in terms of my worthiness of love. And, um, I didn't really know where I was going with my life. And I, um, I came to, you know, a place where as a result of their relationship ending, my housing, uh, was also ending as well. And so I was con contemplating moving back to Chicago. And, um, that's where the people that I was working for as a part-time dog handler stepped in and gave me the opportunity of a lifetime to stay in San Francisco and move into the dog facility, but I was bottomed out. I felt like my life just didn't really stack up to more than a, a hill of beans. And I was just sort of ready to check out and was at a pretty dark place of what, not ever really contemplating suicide, but at the same time feeling like maybe if I could just leave this earth, that would sort of put an end to some of this misery that I was feeling. Cause I just felt like I kept failing and wasn't finding anything to really, fulfill me. And, and I, I just sort of saw my life chalking up to a bunch of X's instead of check marks. And I was just sort of done with it all, to be honest. Well, Daniel, I'm touched by what you're just saying that, because I think that's where a lot of people get a lot of people that aren't, or haven't ever even been actively suicidal. I think they have this kind of passive suicidal feeling like just if I went, it'd be okay with me. You know, if life ended now, that'd be fine. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there's a resignation and a, a weariness to that. Mm -hmm. And life is so hard and so challenging that if I wasn't around, I wouldn't have to deal with it. Basically, yeah. it would just kind of clear the board. And it always makes me wonder when somebody has, has been actively suicidal, has made an attempt even, or has indeed ended their life. I often wonder if they were suicidal or if they just wanted pain to stop and couldn't figure out another way. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think it is wanting the pain to stop because I don't, 
think I really wanted to. I know I didn't want to, and I don't even think I had the courage to go through with it. I never got to the, the point of even actually planning it out or thinking what it would look like. It was just that feeling of like wanting this pain and comfortability to stop, to go away. Well, I would challenge you to say that it took courage to sort of not go there. <laughs> True. So as opposed to taking courage to act on it. So you got invited to live in a dog kennel. Now there's quite an invitation. You've got to tell me a little <laughs> bit more about that. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the Taj Mahal. Let's just say it that way. No, it wasn't all glossy. That wasn't even the long-term plan because I was working part-time and I was living in the most expensive city in America. Um, my, my bosses at the time saw a lot of potential in me and said, if you would like to move into the dog training facility and to be clear, it was a bedroom with no windows upstairs next to a shower and a kitchen and downstairs were where the dogs were. I was invited to move into this facility, this warehouse in the warehouse district and live there on the condition that I would find some housing somewhere else. And after a couple interviews with potential roommates and attempts to find housing based on my income and my rental history in the city, nothing panned out. And so it just sort of ended up that I just stayed in that dog training facility surrounded by chop shops and auto vehicle storage places and recording studios. And uh, there was no, it was not a residential area. So yeah, the plan wasn't to live in that building, but um, I never found another place to go to. And so that just became my home for about a year and a half. And for anybody listening that doesn't live anywhere near San Francisco or maybe Manhattan or something like that, rentals in San Francisco are hard to find, crazy expensive. And if you have any any little blot on your rental history or anything, it, it can be even impossible to get. So this was actually a pretty cool offer in a way, as, as dismal as it may sound to those outside of the city, it was probably, <laughs> you were probably pretty grateful to have it, I'm guessing. Oh, my word. Yeah, I got to live rent-free in the most expensive city and I got to keep working with dogs. And I also didn't want to return to my life in Chicago because I had come to California for new opportunity and new experience. And I felt like if I was going to go back three months after getting here, I would be going back to the same situation that I had just left. And I liked being in California with the palm trees and the warm weather. And I was happy to extend my stay there and continue working with dogs and see what opportunities came. So there also wasn't an intense desire to go back to Chicago. It was just, well, I can't live here, so I guess I'll go back to where I have a, a, a home base, so to speak. Felt like an, the only option you had for a while. Yeah, and my, my bosses said, well, we're going to buy you a plane ticket to go back to Chicago for the weekend, and you can say goodbye to all your friends and then come back and work with us. And I said, okay, sounds good. Pretty cool bosses. Yeah, definitely, definitely some angels. Well, you know, to this point in your story, you know, I bet there are thousands upon thousands of people who in their late 20s, early 30s, you might be describing their life, you know, kind of, I don't quite know what I want to do. I was making money, but it doesn't really work for me. I don't quite have what I want. Love didn't pan out. Now I'm not quite sure. I haven't found my thing. I haven't found who I am yet. That sounds like a not uncommon story. And, and some people that it, it continues to go downward. It continues to, to be, to plummet them toward more depression or more self-harm or more self-loathing, those kinds of things. But 
things turned for you in 2017. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So I, um, I was basically living in this dog training facility, working a lot of hours, loving it, getting more and more familiar with dogs. But I also had a fear of dogs while I was working there. There was this apprehension around them just because I didn't really understand them that well. I couldn't read their body language that well. Um, I didn't grow up with having a dog in my house. I've never had a dog. And so so you didn't go into dog training because you'd had a lifelong passion to do that. That was just sort of the gig that you got and that was working for the moment. Yeah, I got into it because I moved to Chicago, to San Francisco with the expectation that I would work remotely and that job fell through immediately and I was given a month to find something I was interested in doing and I looked for jobs on Craigslist with kids and with dogs um, because I had been introduced to dogs psychology through Caesar Milan and I always was giving armchair advice in Chicago while working a corporate job about dogs and here there was an opportunity to work with dogs. And I found an ad posting for no experience necessary will train from the ground up. So I'm now working with dogs and living with them, but still not really totally comfortable because I didn't have a family pet dog growing up. I've never owned my own dog. So there was still this sort of disconnect yet an attraction at the same time. Since a young boy, I've loved dogs. I've always, I used to ask for a dog, but it just never worked out with my family situation. So there's this attraction to dogs, but not a complete understanding. And, um, I would basically do a lot of self-educating in my room at night. I would read books, watch videos on YouTube. And, um, one video in particular, um, about the secret language of dogs just turned into this aha moment. And I just started laughing uncontrollably at sort of my previous ignorance and also this newfound joy in, in finally understanding the language of dogs and the way they communicate. Um, it was a video by this man named Martin McKenna from Australia, this Irishman actually. And after watching that video, my whole perspective on dogs changed. I was confident. I understood how they were communicating and I started developing uh, a different relationship with dogs than the one um, that was being promoted through the training at the place I worked at. And that started to result in a bit of a conflict between myself and my boss. I was the head trainer who was trying things out with dogs that were a little different than what we were teaching in our lessons and what was being preached. And so um, the aha moment really just led to me seeing dogs in a different light and finding this different connection with them. Um, and one thing led to another and I had this spontaneous spiritual awakening in my bedroom one night, um, while doing this short little breath work exercise. And, um, all, all I can remember is all of a sudden my, my body was being showered with this amazing feeling of love and the presence of God. And I was crying and I grew up as an atheist in a religious home. My mother was a minister and I always had this relationship with God of not feeling God's presence and feeling kind of forgotten by God and not really accepted and um, and just didn't believe in God. And in, in this awakening, this spontaneous feeling of just God's presence, of having always been there, of always being loved, just flew into my body. And then I got very clear messages that it was time for me to part ways, that I was going down my own path with dogs and it wasn't the path that um, working there was taking me on. And so it was sort of time for me to forge out on my own. And so I had this awakening and didn't know what was going on in my body, but I came to work the next day and I said, 
I've got to go. I'm leaving in three days. I'm going home. I don't know what happened to me. Um, I think I'm having a nervous breakdown. They were wondering what had happened to me. I didn't know how to explain it. I just knew I felt really emotional, really good. And my voice was really low and I was very calm. And it was just something that I still am like kind of trying to understand, but it, it really came through understanding dogs more, which helped me get over my fear. I want to try to get my brain around this and, and I'll, I'll do it with my heart. So that'll, that'll work. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the kind, it was, it was like a, when you know how some locks that you, you put the key in and you turn it and there's one clunk and then you turn it a little further and there's another clunk and then the door opens. Mm-hmm. It's like a two stage tumbler of mm-hmm. sorts. It sounds to me like that's what sort of happened with you. Like the, the, making the connection with the dog, like the kind of getting it, oh, this is how you think, this is how you are. That understanding of the dog also then unlocked you. Yeah. Opened you up. It, am I am I hearing that the way that you mean it? Yeah. No, that's a beautiful way of of reflecting that back. It really, it unlocks something. I think when we move through fear, we we get to move beyond something that's been holding us back and we get to discover other parts of ourselves. And I really think through moving through that fear, um, I, I unlocked and found this whole other aspect of myself that was connected to something much bigger than me. Um, and it, and it came through, through dogs, not in a, not in a direct way of me trying to unlock myself and understand myself, um, which is really kind of, beautifully poetic in itself but yeah that's a great way of saying it. it it really was it was what opened up the next kind of notch in the tumbler of unlocking myself huh. well and and for other people it may not be through animals it may be through nature it may be through literal church it may be through art it, there, there, whatever that initial first turn is <laughs> it, that connects us to our higher self and however one defines that of course it sounds like that was, it, it changed not only how you were looking at the world, but how you were looking at yourself, no? Oh, totally. The way I say it is I died on that day and I was reborn in my own body. Um, that, that truly was a, a 180 degree transformation. I have not looked at life or myself or my connection to everything around me in the same way ever again. I am not the same person and I am still the same person. So it truly was a rebirth, um, at, at 36, uh, 36 years old of just being a completely transformed person and getting to know myself, nature and God and everything that I thought I knew over in a whole new way. And I remember coming back to Chicago and my friends being like, what happened to you out there? You are not the same Daniel who left. They recognized it from the outside. Yeah, totally. And it's the most beautiful thing that could ever have happened to me. And I'm a firm believer that everything happens for a reason and it happens when it's supposed to happen and that there is divine timing in all things. And that this was just the blueprint that I laid out for myself before I incarnated into this body that at this moment in my life, I would have this experience and my life would be able, would begin to take on a higher meaning and a higher purpose and that I would start really starting to connect with 
a fulfilling part of of myself and ironically it was like through this deep connection with god hmm. well so from 2017 until recently what you've done is you've done dog training and you've helped people make their connections with their animals and and all of that that's been how that's been the vehicle that you've been using to feed yourself and get around the world and do do that and discover more and more it sounds as though there's a there's a an additional transition happening for you right now can you say a bit about that yeah so yeah i stepped into the classic dog trainer role you know my dog pulls on a leash my dog jumps on people um but i also through this awakening and this rebirth wasn't became in contact with my ancestors and and gifts that i have in, inside of myself dealing with more using energy um through the practice of reiki um, through the practice of telepathic communication with animals or dog, uh, psychic or, you know, dog whisperer or Dr. Doolittle or something in that regard of, of communicating telepathically, uh, with, with animals. And so, yeah, for the past couple of years, I've been doing the, the classic dog training, but I've recently felt uh, a bit of a step back from that and, and a bit of a shift in the, in the way that I approach the relationship between dogs and people and, and, and all animals and people and, and, and using more of my shamanic gifts of healing through um, through psychic communication and energy healing with Reiki. And so I really feel like it's also just adding another way of connecting with people and animals where I can offer that service as well and not sort of throwing out what I was doing before, but just adding a couple more items to the menu. So your destiny is not dog trainer extraordinaire, <laughs> although that seems to be that connection with animals and connection with linking people and their animals and all of that along with this spiritual realm, which, yeah. which it does not sound like a, a, a specific religion of any kind, but, but a sort of spiritual rebirth and a spiritual connection with God, as you know, it, it sounds as though the next phase is about continuing to be open to the next plateau, so to speak. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an advocate for all animals and I really feel like I am a bridge between the animal world and humanity and yeah, I'm not out here to be dog trainer extraordinaire. I'm I'm here to more create an understanding and and a healing and and bringing people maybe into more of a connection with nature and themselves through their pets. And so yeah, I think it's just a new plateau and a new chapter um but really broadening out to more than just working with dogs, but, you know, helping cats and elephants and horses and lizards and birds and fish and whatever is a, a soul inside of an animal body. That's not human. Hmm. Well, Daniel, I'm, I'm touched by something you said earlier, and I kind of want to go back to it just for a second as we come toward the end of our conversation. And that is you talked about how there aren't straight lines in nature. I've never heard that said quite that way before. And I'm wondering what you make of that because I want to, I want to chew on it for a while myself <laughs> after mm -hmm. we have this conversation. But what do you make of that? I make of it that life flows in its own way and there's no direct path to anything. And we have to be flexible we have to be open to serendipity, to the movements of the wind. We have to remain 
open to the curves and movements and, and life just has an organic flow and nothing is permanent and nothing is set in stone when it comes to working with nature. And so really, I think it's a lot of just surrender and allowing. And so I think the curves and the round just sort of embodies that and implies that and shows that that there's going to be changes and things are always going to be unfolding. We're always growing. We're always evolving. And really just to be whimsically open to to those movements because I, the, like you said before, it's not a religion for me. I don't practice any one faith um, because that to me feels like a container. Um, I'm open to God showing up in any form through a dog through whatever. But yeah, I think for me, it's just that fluidity that, that round lines seem to evoke. Hmm. Well, if I've learned nothing from these 60 plus interviews I've done so far for the Morning Glory Project, I've learned that there are a lot of different ways that people get through what they get through. And and I, I came into this sort of thinking that I'd find a single theme and I've since found hundreds. <laughs> well, at least 60 anyway. And other people that are different than you find comfort in the lines and the boxes. That's what makes them, when things line up, that works for them. And that didn't work for you. What works for you is the flow and the evolution and the change and the what you, what you call the being whimsically open. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I thank you so much for sharing because it sounds as though this transition for you was from anger and depression and frustration with the, the, the fenced inness of life, the going to work to earn money stuff, the, the, the linear arrangement of it all, that this is you without that, that, that you get to flow. You get to be less angry. I'm hearing less depressed. I'm hearing still a work in progress, still growing, changing, evolving. Yes, totally. Still evolving, still growing, always the student and really the, the foundation of that. If there was a a box, a safety, a container, it's self-love and just realizing how often we forsake our own selves by not loving ourselves, um, where we don't have much to give to the world because we aren't loving ourselves. We can list a million things we love, but usually we're not even on that list. And so self-love mm-hmm. is really, I think, the foundation that keeps me going and flowing. Well, one of our, one of our past guests, um, Marianne Ingheim, has written a whole book about that you might be interested in. So I'll, we'll connect about that later on. But Daniel, Charles, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project today. And those interested in hearing about what he has to say about connecting to animals and more than that, can, you can find him at clearcanineacademy.com. And that's clear, C-L-E-A-R, the letter K, the number nine, academy.com. Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today. I'm honored by it. Betsy, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate the conversation. Thank you. My conversation with Daniel Charles today left me really thinking about how many people don't fit into the boxes. 
whether it's school or church or family or job, how confining that is for some kinds of people. Some people find comfort in predictability and pattern, and other people it chafes. And Daniel referred to himself as black sheep in a way, and, and I wonder how many people feel that way, how many people feel that because they're not, quote, living up to their potential as someone else assesses it, that they're a failure, that life isn't worth living, that it's not satisfying. I wonder how much we harm kids with that phrase. He has potential, but he's not living up to it. I wonder how many of you have heard that phrase. How many of us have felt that way? And even if it wasn't delivered to us by a teacher or a counselor or something like that, I wonder if we feel it ourselves that there's more, that we should be doing more. That word should, should, should. Past guest Jen Pasteloff says, should is an asshole. (laughs) And I've come to believe that that's kind of true. So it's something that I try to resist. The other thing that really comes to mind when I think of my conversation with Daniel is I love when he said that he wanted to remain whimsically open, whimsically open. And I've thought about what that phrase means. And that I think if you're kind of a straight line person, that might make you uncomfortable and itchy. And part of me, it does too. That sort of sounds like California flaky (laughs) or something like that. But it, to me, whimsically open says, I'm going to respond to what comes next. I'm not going to just pound through and make everything my own direction. I'm going to see what is, and I'm going to respond to that, as opposed to just forcing a certain preconceived idea. That's what nature does, right? That's what morning glories do. They wiggle around, they go over the rocks and around the corners and through the darkness and over the wall of the shed. They are whimsically open to finding light. Maybe that's one of the keys, right? Being whimsically open. Those are pretty good extra blooms for me today. Thanks so much for listening to the Morning Glory Project. I know that there's a lot of competition for your time and that you would spend it any Any part of it here with me is something I really appreciate. So thank you for that. And I certainly hope that wherever you are, that you're able to find a beautiful way to bloom. 